Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller and Danny Nelson as they seize the world of crypto. And hello, uh, this is Carpe Consensus. This is a podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network. I'm Ben Schiller and joining me today is Danny Nelson. Hi, Danny. Hello. Good to see you there. I have a little cold today. Uh, are you feeling? Are you feeling good, Danny? You know, it, usually I'm the one with the cold. Today I'm feeling nice and chipper, so uh, I'm glad that you get to experience what I always do. All right. Well, hopefully I'm not too nasally and uh, incomprehensible, or no more incomprehensible than normal. So, Danny, uh, you're coming out with a big scoop, uh, a big story this week. Some of which I have to confess I don't quite understand because it is deep into DeFi weeds. But it does involve a form of insider trading, which may or may not be illegal. Do you want to take this away? Yeah. So uh, I must say it it is one of those uh, really in-depth stories. And I I would say the best way to approach it is just by sitting down and thinking, I'm going to read a 1,500-word story for the next three and a half hours, because that's the way that you need to read it. Some people do actually read 1,500-word stories occasionally and do actually take the time to do that. So uh, if you're one of those people out there, then go and read Danny's story. Yes, please do. And if you aren't, please send it to those who will, because uh, I got to juice my numbers. But anyway, this story is about two protocols that are very closely aligned, a bigger one and a smaller one. The bigger one decides to shut down the smaller one, and the value of the smaller one goes up tremendously. But the bigger one had already bought about half of the tokens of the smaller one, meaning that the bigger one takes the smaller one's money. Now, that's a very simplified, if you can even believe that that's a simplified way of getting into what this story is. But what's important for everyone to know is that everything on the blockchain is transparent. And when people are using their wallets, you can see what they're doing. And you can see when they're buying assets and selling and trading. When you take that data of, let's say, a big whale or an insider doing a market activity, And then you look at other data sources, like what's happening in the Discord, what are the announcements, what are they saying, what are they promising to their community, you can start to form a picture of what in the traditional markets might be construed as insider trading. And that's what happened here. Right. So you're saying it's insider trading because the same person controlled both entities? 
Well, so let me, I'll, I'll describe a little bit more detail what's going on here. So the bigger protocol is called Hedgic. It's an options trading protocol on the Solana blockchain. It has a token. It also has a founder. The founder is called Molly Wintermute, who has also made a smaller protocol called Whiteheart. Now, Whiteheart, like most DeFi whatevers, didn't really work out. The difference between Whiteheart and the other, and most other protocols is Whiteheart still has all the money that it raised years ago. And so there's all this money and the thing's shutting down. So there's this question, what do we do with the money? And we've talked a lot about on this show about these RFV trades where people buy tokens at a discount to sell them for the treasury value. Mm. That's sort of what happens here where the token called White becomes a treasury redemption vehicle. So it was trading at $190. And then there was an announcement that it was actually basically worth $3,500. The thing is, Hedgic and its own treasury and Mali bought as many white tokens as it could when this thing was trading around $190 in anticipation of their own announcement. So you can see what some might describe as front-running happening here, where an insider who obviously knows something is going to happen that is going to move the market buys at the discount in order to perhaps cash out at the higher price because they know something that the market doesn't. Now, this is all visible. You can see it on chain. It's happening. It's definite. The question is, is it illegal? And in the securities context, for if this was Apple, it might, it might well be illegal, but it's not Apple. The question then becomes, should it be treated in the same way? Right. Just to be clear, I mean, Molly uh, Wintermute is a pseudonym? Uh, yes, I believe so. And I will say, Molly Wintermute, I do not think has any relation to Wintermute, the big trading company. Right, exactly. Why might this be insider trading and why might it not be insider trading? Well, it's a matter of opinion. I would posit to say that Molly, who at the time of recording, I will say, has not gotten back to us. I think that Molly doesn't think that this is illegal, insider trading. But there's reasons to think that the SEC and the Department of Justice in the U.S., might think otherwise. In the past few years, we've seen a couple of insider trading cases where the DOJ has come after insiders at OpenSea and also Coinbase for trading on information that they knew that the market didn't. In the OpenSea case, uh, Nate Chastain, who was the head of product, knew what NFTs were going to be listed on OpenSea's homepage. So he bought them before that happened because he knew or had a very good reason to think that as soon as they listed they would go up in price. And so even though that's an NFT, which isn't probably not a security, the DOJ accused him of committing wire fraud because he was defrauding basically the people that he was buying it from. And it's conceivable that this could fall into that same bucket or maybe even into the securities insider trading bucket, depending on if uh, regulators take a look at it. Right. So this is the world of DeFi, though. I mean, it's supposed to be decentralized and therefore sort of blameless or, you know, there there isn't a sort of central actor to blame for a lot of things. Is there a potential get out for Molly if if they do come after her or if if it is her to say that, you know, this is a DeFi project and uh, I can't be blamed for this? Well, so that's the thing, right? Because projects such as Hedgic and many others fly under this banner of DeFi and they are DeFi insofar that they occur on the Ethereum blockchain. So 
they can't conceivably be stopped or whatever. But there are other ways where it isn't decentralized. Like in some DeFi protocols, there are tokens that act as governance chips. If you have the token, you can vote in the DAO. Well, there's no DAO here. Not that that would actually make it more decentralized, in my opinion. But there's no DAO that even pretends to make it more decentralized or purports to make it more decentralized. It's just one person who is Mali, according to Mali's own statements, calling the shots. And you can see how those shots are being called because of actions like, well, what's the most important thing? What's happening to the money? The money is in the treasury. And as far as I can tell on the chain, there's only one wallet that is able to just unilaterally withdraw money. And that's Mali. That's Mali's wallet. So if this one person has access to the money, is also the one who conducted the raise, and is the one who's making big decisions like, we're going to shut down the protocol, I think that you start to lose that veneer of credibility when you say, well, you can't come after me because it's decentralized. Interesting. Have other people cashed out their white tokens? Oh, yes. And I will say, this is an interesting one because it's not like you can say, well, this activity harmed this investor or that investor. For the most part, anyone who was holding white tokens is up tremendously because this token was just, it was dog, it was garbage. It was nothing. It was forgotten for the longest time, three years, it was trading at a really low price. And anyone who bought at that really low price can now redeem, just like Molly can, at a much higher price. So they're happy. And any of the original investors are going to be happy as well because well, they paid 1.7 ETH three years ago. You know, ETH has gone up in value, so that kind of sucks. But now they can get at least 1.7 ETH back at the end of the story. So they're going to be happy too, because often you don't get any money back. So it doesn't sound like any of these investors are going to be approaching Gary Gensler at the SEC and saying, please investigate this uh, Molly person for uh, ruining our lives. This isn't like an FTX situation, right? No, it's definitely not like an FTX situation, but I think it is, in its complexity, something that makes you think about what should be right and wrong in the crypto markets. Because if there are these protocols that are acting very much like companies, and much more so as a centralized entity with the ability to move money unilaterally and, and, and shut things down unilaterally and all these things, well, if they're acting in that way, then should we be holding them to the same standards that we do public companies? The SEC certainly thinks so. And even though there aren't any big victims here, I think it's still worth considering what, this, what the takeaways should be about how we think about these markets. But wait a minute. I mean, nobody in DeFi really claims to be acting with the fiduciary responsibility of a public company. I mean, isn't that an absurd kind of bar to hold them to? Well, they might not claim to be acting that way, but if they still are acting that way, then what they're claiming might not matter, right? Because you, I don't think you get to have it both ways. You can't say we're some new type of financial primitive, but then be pulling the levers of power in a way that means you really should be held to the standards that you would be if you were. Right. But nobody in the, in the world of outside of crypto has ever heard of Hedgick or oh, of course not. I mean, it's, it's quite hard to communicate the story to the wider world. And this is very much a kind of an inside game, isn't it? And uh, it does lead you to think that there's probably a lot of other inside games going on around DeFi. What do you think? Oh, for sure. It, it really is an inside game. And I think that speaks to 
how these new markets and these permissionless places are making it easy for people to do things that they just couldn't do otherwise. But what you have here is a rather clear case that someone purchased a token at a discount uh, because they knew that it was about to go up in value based on what they were doing. And uh, whether or not that's, that should be legal is up for debate. But if we're going to take the crypto market seriously, and if we're going to think that these might be the future of finance, let alone the future of France, <laughs> then I think we need to really think about these issues. You said you reached out to, to Molly, went to mute. Did you reach out to any, any of the other investors in uh, the token, either one of the tokens? Yeah, I did reach out to a couple. One responded. And what that person said was basically, look, it's very rare for a founder to issue a redemption at the price that people paid at the beginning. Mm. Uh, and so that's important to us, right? So that's the big takeaway from the investors. This isn't some massive harm that's being done to them. But again, I think that you know, from our moralizing point of view above the markets or whatever, it's it's incumbent upon us to look at these things and ask the harder questions that might not be so fun to think about. Interesting. Well, it's definitely a great story, Danny. So congratulations on that. Any word from the SEC on this? No word from the SEC quite yet. Right. Uh, I mean, they're normally so uh, forthright and forthcoming and useful and helpful in uh, helping us understand the legal clarity and whatnots of uh, crypto markets. It's uh, quite surprising they didn't respond to you, Danny. Yes. Well, I, I will say I haven't reached out to the SEC. I don't really know what I would say to them. But I have spoken to professors who uh, shared with me what they thought the SEC would think. And what they said was basically, well, if Gary Gensler has already said that he thinks that the vast majority of crypto tokens are unregistered securities that need to be regulated by him. And there's no reason to think that he would change his tune in this case. Right. Well, uh, Molly, if you're out there, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, this is your chance to be in the limelight on Coindesk. So uh, have, have at it and uh, respond to Danny. So just out of interest, Danny, I mean, um, for someone looking in from the outside, I mean, how long would a story like this uh, take to put together? I mean, you've got quite a lot of data analysis to do. You've got to work out what's going on. You've got to reach out to professors and protagonists in the story. Uh, how long does all that take? Well, I, I kind of dragged my feet on this one. It's been a matter of weeks since I started. But I, there's a lot of work that I've done that is not in the story. I looked at all these other people to see if they were front-running too. I spent a lot of time labeling things on the chain. And then I wrote it, and I rewrote it, and I think I rewrote the whole story three times. Because each time you write it, it becomes a little bit clearer in your head and easier to tell the story. Now, the outcome, as you saw, is still rather dense. And I just don't know how to make it not too dense, right? How do you write about a complex regulatory uh, crypto topic for a broad audience? And my answer might be that in some places, you just can't do that. It's just too, you can't compromise the complexity always in order to reach the broadest audience. because. At the end of the day, it isn't the broadest audience that really cares about the story. So you might want to go in deeper to tell the clearer story for those who, uh, who care to read. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the labor and the love that goes into reporting for your edification on coindesk.com. And some of the stories, I mean, not all of them, but uh, some of the stories like this one really do take a lot of work. And not everything you see on the page is so simple. So congratulations, Danny. Thank you. 
Okay, Danny, uh, we've had a good run on this show, uh, Carpe Consensus, and we also worked together in a previous incarnation called Opinionated. We do have to tell our listeners that we will be taking uh, what could be an extended break. It could be a shorter break, but it might be an extended break into the new year when we won't be producing Carpe Consensus anymore. This is connected to some changes at Coindesk recently with a change of ownership and budgets as they are. And uh, so, Danny, how are you feeling about all of this? You know, I guess we'll just have to see where the adventure takes us. We've had a whole bunch of iterations. I started podcasting for Coindesk on, let's see, it was three shows ago. It was called Borderless, I believe. Oh, Borderless, I remember that. Borderless, yeah, with Nick Day. We talked about uh, crypto regulation. It was way too niche. I think it's it's kind of funny, now that I think about it, that we started with crypto regulation. And at least for this segment of the show's history, we're also ending with crypto regulation. I mean, crypto regulation, it's always right there, front and center, especially in the last 12 months. So uh, hopefully Danny and I will continue to work together in some form. And we do want to say some... Yes, uh, we, we cannot forget to thank Eleanor, who has put so many hours of labor of love into the show to make it, as you said at the top of the hour, coherent. Yeah. Uh, so Eleanor, thank you very relatively much for your so. efforts. Yeah, relatively coherent. There's only so much you can do with this pile of nonsense that Ben and I create. Yeah. No, she, she does an incredible job. So we'll see you again in the year, uh, dear listener. And, uh, but for now, that's all from us, uh, Danny and I, and from Eleanor. And goodbye. Bye. Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production. Executive produced by Jared Schwartz. And produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com. Subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening and see you next week.